0: And I know you guys weren't in the UK market for a long time, so it might be an inapt comparison. But whatever your biggest market, what is your biggest market?
1: It's like rest of world is the biggest
0: market. Rest of world, that sounds like, like a nice place. I want to go there. What's the capital? Rest of world?
1: Brazil. <laughs> <we're> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hello, everybody. I am Jason Trost, the host of the business of betting podcast for the 196th episode. I can't believe there's been 196 episodes today. We are joined by the ex CEO of Pinnacle, Paris Smith, who's dialing in from Curacao. Curacao down under in the Caribbean. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Paris. I'm very excited for the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So you're an American. I'm an American. What do you think about America these days? What's your take on America?
1: It's a great country. I feel privileged to have been able to live abroad. I love watching uh the news watching from the sidelines. You know, obviously with gaming getting more in the forefront, more acceptable, that's been, you know. I think that's really exciting for all of us. You know, there's changes constantly states. You know, hopefully some states will kind of reel back and realize that they have a bigger opportunity if they just look at it more realistically from the regulatory standpoint. But there's a lot of states that are doing it right. So from that regard, it's exciting. And then just in general, I'm uh, not excited for, you know, I'm watching all the campaign ads on my cable TV here and I could live without that as well. No, it's not like it used to be. People are just scathing. It's incredible. And there's such a lack of respect people in general. And that's that's a sad part. And they're not talking issues, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you, but I think I'm going to misquote the historical record. But I think if you go back 150, 200 years ago, I mean, there used to be duels. I mean, people used to have an argument and shoot each other. And so at least we don't do that today, at least not uh, as often as they used to. There used to be fights all the time in the House of Representatives and people used to call each other names. Did you see the, the musical Hamilton? Yeah. They talked about in one of the songs, they talked about all the name throwing that everybody was doing back in. So I think there is historical precedent for being quite nasty to one another. So that gives me hope that today's not as bad as it is, but it does. Living in the bubble of the American world right now, it, just, it feels a little bit surreal. Do you have a favorite uh, horse in the race, so to speak?
1: No, I don't. I would like to see the new breeds coming in.
0: The new breeds. All right. Speaking of pinnacle, so like, I don't know if you remember, you probably don't remember, but we played poker against each other and you cleaned my clock. So thank you very much for that. I was really playing to win. I'm not a poker expert, but I, I'm very competitive and you really resoundly beat me. So very well done. And I think, did you win the table?
1: Was Yeah. Was that in Barcelona?
0: It was in Barcelona about a year ago. So wow. it was...
1: But I'm a huge fan of yours, Jason. So I do always remember
0: you. Likewise, likewise.
1: I've what you're doing and I admire you a lot. And yeah, I will always remember
0: you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, why don't we kick off with, I think there's a nice overlap between, I know you don't work at Pinnacle anymore, so um, you probably can't comment. Well, you certainly, uh, do you own shares or, or are you completely out of Pinnacle? I own shares. Okay, so you're part owner of of Pinnacle these days. But what I think is interesting, the reason I founded markets was basically to bring low margin trading to the betting world. And it's not too dissimilar from what Pinnacle's always been trying to do of having a low juice, low big kind of model. And one of the things I've seen in the industry is I think if anything, the world is moving away from that model. Like not only is it not getting more efficient, but I think it's actively getting more inefficient. I think with the, you know, the, same game parlays and the multiples and the ACAs and, you know, the fan duels of the world. I remember when I sat next to a fan duel guy at a conference and he basically said, our margin is like nine, 10% and we want to increase it. I thought, oh my God, that's crazy that people are trying to go from 10% higher. What's your take on the industry? Do you think that the pinnacle model and the smartest model, like we're romantics and, you know, we'll have a cute little corner of the sports betting industry? Or do you think that sort of a historical blip and value will reign supreme long term. What's, what's your take on that?
1: You know, there's just so many different market segments. And I think, and I'm sure you've done it as well as Pinnacle's done a brilliant job more recently of adapting to the market. So, you know, it started out where with Asia where it was like really, really tiny, tiny old percentages. And also you shared a lot with the partners over there. So that was not efficient model. It was not sustainable where people would take 0% PT position taking. They bring in huge players that were, you know, super sharp. And the only people making money were the agents. And then, you know, everybody realized quickly, okay, now you have to force position. And then they started managing the type of players that came in. And we just kept adapting, adapting. Remember, it was back in the days where everybody was looking at newspapers, making bets. And now, I mean, everything is machine learning. Everybody has their modelers, their AI teams. And, you know, you have to shift with that. And you're not going against the players. You're going against robots, for the most part, in arbitrage. It has shifted. You know, the pinnacle five, 10 years ago is not the same pinnacle that they have today. And shifting with the market, it's not a winner's welcome, those types of things. That's all great but you also have to have a sustainable business and make money, right? So, you know, they manage all of that risk better. They have different limits, different big, big ladders on things like that. So I think that there is a world that this is a great product where Pinnacle is going to be advantaged is having the Pinnacle solution as a partner in their product suite because having that activity creates the best pricing in the market, right? Then from a B2B perspective, people will be able to utilize that. Currently, you know, there's comfy cats, people utilize the line as a guidance, whatever it might be. But, you know, we have proven that if you take the line, you're probably going to do okay. If you have Pinnacle manage the bet flow, you're going to make more money than what you could make. So I think that's that's the focus right now. It's kind of a, it's a compliment. And of course, you know, is it going to be for everybody? No. But as players get smarter, I think value may, you know, it's not going to be king, but it's going to be important to people, especially when they're starting to bet more money.
0: I mean, if you imagine sports betting in 20 years, I mean, I, I like to think what we're doing is similar to Vanguard, if you're, if you're familiar with them, the ones that have the mutual funds and you know they keep squeezing the basis points at the church or managing the mutual funds and index funds and things like that. And I think going back to this romantic idea, like maybe it's a romantic idea that that's possible in sports betting, but do you see that like kicking in at some point or do you think that in 20 years, like there's gonna be, I mean, to me, 10% margin is insane. When I was a stock trader, you would fight for pennies. then. this is like 15 years ago, and now it's probably fractions of pennies or decimal points of pennies, rather. Really. Will there be a revolution to bring betting more akin to finance, or is it going to stay um, silly money like it is today? That's a tough question.
1: The other point I just want to draw out to you is, is it really sports betting when you have all those different derivatives? I mean, maybe if you looked at it, what is core sports betting and what are the margins there Versus what are the margins in all the other prop bets that people are doing? Cause that's where they're making their, their money. And that's where the margin goes up with parlays and same gate parlays, et cetera. So I think that there, are, it's hard to tell in 20 years. I mean, God, I've been around for 28 years. And if you'd asked me 28 years ago, is it ever going to go online? I'd say no. <laughs> so yeah, it's a tough one.
0: I looked for this, but. I don't know if it's live or not, but our our margin on the sportsbook SBK side is blended around seven percent. That includes multiples and singles. And on the exchange side, smart it's about three or four percent. Does Pinnacle publish its blended margin, or is it any of that public? No. Do you want to share it, or is that uh, inside baseball? Not really. <laughs> awesome. Moving on. So, like you know, the uh, the big uh, publicly traded companies. I mean, they're very public about their margins, and I think the blended. Uh, last I looked, FanDuel draft DraftKings are around 10-ish, 11-ish percent, something like that. To me, it's insane. I mean, that's sort of like, that's why I'm in this industry, because I looked at that and I was like, that's insane. But maybe we're going to be on the outside looking in uh, as the value people.
1: Well, but the interesting thing is, I mean, they're also able to hold those percentages because they're not taking anybody that knows any, right? You know, the more sharp action you cut out, the higher your margins going to go. And they're known for cutting out anybody who wins a few bets.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to get a see if you can open up a little bit of introspection here. But like as the CEO of Pinnacle for so long, do you think you made a mistake? Because I know Pinnacle spent a lot, a lot, lot of time and energy trying to educate your user base. You know, I thought some of the stuff you put out was great. I think Jesse was actually a big part of like the betting education component of Pinnacle. But like. Yes, I think you're right to sort of knock the other people for um blocking sharps from using their site. And I think that's kind of a ridiculous thing that sportsbooks have to do. But on the other hand, the retail sort of the the retail betters like we slash you have not sufficiently convinced them to move over to a low vig model in enough numbers such that FanDuel, DraftKings and whoever else can continue operating that high margin model. So like, what do you think you made a mistake or did you? But do you think you made a mistake?
1: Well, I think it, I could have done it much better, right? Sometimes, you know, we're our own worst enemies. And product is phenomenal. The product delivery of what people see and to make it easier to use, et cetera, that was the challenge, right? And we could have done that so much better. And they are going to continue to make that better. But I look back and again, you know, I was a competitor of Pinnacle Before I came. And that's all anybody talked about. Pinnacle, pinnacle, pinnacle. You know, all my friends bet there. And that was, you know, no social media word of mouth was king. And it was just massive. So I always feel like, you know, it's a Costco model. Value should prevail at some point, but it's how you present it if you make it easy for people. And when it was easy for people back in the days where everybody was in the US market, it was king. So, you know, I do have a lot of hope in that romantic view of value and things like that. You're not going to get the masses like DraftKings and FanDuel, but you're going to get the higher quality people, right? So you're going to have more volume, less hold, but a great profit. Like that's, you know, I think that that's actually a sustainable business model within the U.S. market. Of course, it's all complicated. Because each state and all the different regulatory compliance things. So it's going to be uh, challenging. More challenging than it was.
0: Well, you just mentioned Costco, which is very, very near and dear to my heart. It's one of my favorite places to go to. As You might not have it in Curaçao, but they actually have two in France now. And there's, I think there's 15 in the UK. So it's my right of patches every three weeks to take my kids to Costco. So I love it. And their model is great. If you ever want to look at a crazy company successor, I mean, their stock price is just up and to the right in the last 15 years. But like I started markets after you got into the industry, but you know, I'd say 2008, 2009. And when I got into it, there, there were two like kind of giants in this. There was you guys and there was Betfair Exchange. And just to be a little bit hyperbolic to have an interesting conversation, I feel like Betfair and Pinnacle could have ruled the roost But I would say at some point Betfair Pinnacle plateaued and the Fanduels and the Bet365s and the SkyBets kind of took over. And that's sort of what I'm trying to zero in on is that obviously like price isn't the only factor because if that were the case, then the Betfair Pinnacle model would have succeeded. You know, besides the fact that they're able to like cut out sharps, like do you think that your product falls flat against a SkyBet? Like how would you put... Pinnacle, and I know you guys weren't in the UK market for a long time, so it might be an inapt comparison. But whatever your biggest market, what is your biggest market? It's
1: like rest of world is the biggest market.
0: Rest of world? That sounds like, like a nice place. I want to go there. What's the capital of rest of world?
1: Brussel. <laughs> <for a>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so whoever your biggest competitor is, why are they better at getting customers than Pinnacle?
1: Well, I would say, like I always watch Bet365. But just to go back to the Betfair, you know, when Betfair was going public, they made a lot of changes and then they put in their fee structure and everybody said, forget it. People that made them who they are had to pay them to get them where they are. So, you know, their their model screwed them up, I think. Um, and that's where it started. And you can't compare Pinnacle to DraftKings and FanDuel because we're not in the U.S. market, right? I can look back when there was a moment, because I was only with Pinnacle very briefly while they're in the U.S. market, because that's one of the reasons they hired me was to take him out of it. But, you know, more from the outside, looking into Pinnacle at that time, DraftKings FanDuel did hundreds of millions of dollars worth of advertising. I think Pinnacle's advertising budget back then was like two or three million dollars. So comparatively, it would have held its own. But then, of course, all the different changes with the state-by-state, Just not as clear, no credit business, et cetera. But in the other markets, you know, like Bet365, the first thing they did that was amazing, they had the most phenomenal partner in Asia. And that person blew up Bet365. They made so much money. They did everything right. They had the right partner. They started putting the games on, you know, they were paying for the live games on the site which was super expensive, but they made that investment and then they got that traction. They did all the right sponsorships and then they invested in their products. And a lot of times, how many times you look at a website and it's Bet 365 with different colors. People are thinking, well, they probably put millions of dollars into it. Let me just go with what they're doing type of thing, unfortunately. But they are, I would say, the market leaders. And Pinnacle has chosen to be more of a niche. So, you know, I don't know. I think that they're they're doing great. They're growing. There's a lot of things that can even be better. And they're pulling out of more markets and they're still growing and they're still super profitable. But the fact that they're pulling out of markets and they're complying with regulatory requirements and, you know, I think they're just building that foundation. So when they're ready to go back into markets, it's a lot more efficient.
0: So you're saying that Pinnacle play is playing a different game than Bet365? Oh, for sure.
1: But they're still great to compare to each other.
0: Yeah. What's your take on Betfair Exchange? Because I imagine you and Betfair Exchange back in the day where, you know, you guys were both kind of head-to-head on this sort of the super price-sensitive trader type, uh, shall we say. Like, what did you think of Betfair?
1: You know, I just felt like it was a different type of player. And again, well, I can't even say that because people that had an account with Pinnacle had an account with Betfair. So, you know, I guess the, the reality is there's enough for everybody. But I thought it was great. I thought it was interesting when they did come into the U.S. market back when everybody else was there, they didn't see. So that's interesting because everybody was betting offshore. And from the American perspective, they didn't want to bet on an exchange. They wanted to make their bet just like a general bookie type situation. I was super surprised when they fell flat in the U.S. market.
0: You're talking about their New Jersey horse racing exchange?
1: No, I'm not actually. I'm talking about before 2006 when everybody was in the U.S. market. They were there. They were advertising, but they had contraction.
0: You mean before the law was clear in the U.S.? Yeah. Did you ever think about doing an exchange or is that such a like a foreign concept? You're like, mm, that's not our bag.
1: No, we have looked at it a lot. We've spoken to a lot of exchanges for JB's partnerships. But, you know, it's always it's just more work. I could see it potentially being in the back pocket. The owner of Pinnacle, he's very, very familiar with exchanges. He had a company that was one of the key liquidity providers for Betfair with live livestocker when nobody else was doing it. So he has an affinity to it. And I think with this, you know, five years ago, three years ago, I would have said, I don't think exchanges are going to last or work. Now people want that layoff. You know, not everybody wants to take that action that they know is going to, you know, deteriorate their whole. So, people have the option to go against each other and there's no risk to the book of themselves to have that partnership with an exchange, I think could be really beneficial.
0: You're talking about sports books laying off their risk?
1: That and players that can't get into sports books, they can go there. You know, so there's something for everybody.
0: My experience has been, uh, I mean, as I was prepping for this interview, I watched another interview that you did. And I think you said you guys never lay off your bets. So we don't either, and the reason we don't is because transaction fees are so high. It's not because the concept of hedging is stupid or bad idea in, in sports. It's more just the transaction fees. Even Pinnacle, I think the implied transaction fee would start at, at 2% last time I at your prices. So my take on that is there still will not be that many sports books that want to lay off risk because if you have a 10 plus percent margin, it's kind of like, what's the point? You're making so much money per bet. I've been evolving ideal on exchanges and it'd be good to get your thoughts on it but to me it's more if you think about like traditional finance i see the exchange kind of more becoming sort of like the platform for sports betting to run on top of and, the, and then people want that sort of sportsbook interface you know very similar to where you have the new york stock exchange but you have robin hood that sits on top of it kind of you know a friendly interface and you don't see all the inner trappings of the buying and selling and all that kind of stuff what do you think about something like that? Do you see an exchange kind of underpinning sports betting?
1: I can definitely see that. And there's a lot of, I, I look at a lot of different companies right now, and I'm actually surprised how many wallet exchanges are out there. There's a few coming in and they've got great business models. They've got great technology. And, you know, I, I can see if you have an exchange that has that kind of sportsbook feel, I think that they're going to do pretty well.
0: Any favorite exchanges out there that you, re- you really like that you just want to call out? Just, <laughs> just one. I probably forget somebody. Cool. Well, like looking back at the... How long were you CEO? 20 years? 17. 17. In the UK, they called it that's pretty good innings. Uh, I don't know how you like your cricket metaphors, but that's pretty good innings. Like, is it a happy goodbye or or a sad goodbye?
1: I think it's the right time. Goodbye. I've been kind of in the back of my head saying like when is my shelf life over here you see CEOs coming and going and my fear was that i wasn't bringing anything new and you know now even stepping away i can look in and i'm like god i i could have done a lot of things different and better so i think it was the right time for me personally and i think it's the right time for pinnacle they're shifting a lot they're kind of restrategizing but they're still staying from what i understand true to the core of the business. The product's phenomenal. Like hats off to the people that started Pinnacle. Like they made this so resilient. Uh, Marco Bloom was such a massive asset to Pinnacle. And, you know, it was like, oh, God, if Marco leaves, what would happen? Marco left and we we're still thriving. I'm left and they're still thriving. It's not about you know, that's It's one of the unique companies. I think it's not about people always matter, of course. That was my favorite part about Pinnacle, but the product is going to survive.
0: So taking a slight pivot into being uh, CEO land, uh, what was your max headcount or what was the headcount at uh, Pinnacle?
1: Like around 7.30, probably when I was 85.
0: And you started, I mean, previously, I was listening to your story. You started from the ground up and kind of worked your way up into it. One of the things that's been I think I underappreciated as a CEO. I mean, just for comparison, the max I've had is 150 employees and now we have 90 because we sort of downsized when we were trying to right-size the organization. One of the things I've had to do, which, you know, nobody really teaches you is sort of manage your own psychology. And then when you're running a business, I mean, there's a lot of cliches about it, but, you know, it's very lonely at the top. Like, you know, anytime somebody wants to bitch about the organization, you're a very handy person to blame for all the bad things. And anytime something bad really happens, it kind of lands on your desk and you have to deal with it. What are some of the things that you did to sort of manage your own psychology as somebody who is, I don't know, kind of a self-taught CEO, I guess, or somebody that kind of like, what were some of the the things that you did? Did you join a group? Did you have therapy? Did you exercise? Exercise? I would just run. And if
1: something big was going on, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got to turn around or now I might have to I wish they had Uber here I'm too far, No,
0: know,
1: but for me, people is my core and the people within Pinnacle, you know, that's always tricky. Right now I'm talking to a lot of CEOs that just would love to have an unbiased soundboard. So I'm doing a lot of that, but also having those colleagues within the industry, you know, I've never really looked at anybody as competition because it's such a massive industry. So I adore the guys from Betson. There's just so many books. During COVID, there was a group of us we would call like once a month and just kind of touch base and see if we're all going through the same thing, supporting each other, talking to each other. And it was great. So the camaraderie within the industry, I think that's been one of my biggest saving graces. I've always worked for great people as well. So that's been very helpful using them as a soundboard, the board of directors or the owners of companies that I work for. That's helped a lot. And then every once in a while having a glass of wine. Cool.
0: One of the things that has worked for me is a a group called YPO. I I don't know if you're familiar with it, but YPO has been great because it's got this sort of monthly um, calendar where you meet uh, other CEOs and entrepreneurs for three or four hours once a month. It sounds a little bit like a cult from the outside, but... It's one of the best things that I've done to sort of get that sort of neutral CEO uh, feedback. Have you heard of YPO? No. No. It's really great. So, is the YPO have people from other industries? YPO is from all industries. I mean, it's, I would say there's actually very few people from betting. You know, there's three groups of people in YPO, essentially. It stands for Young Presidents Organization. So, it's designed for people that are under 50. And there's three kind of major groups one is family businesses. The second group is entrepreneurs and the third is hired guns. And the really illuminating thing is that you have all these people from all these completely different backgrounds and everybody has the same problems. So in one of my groups that I was in, somebody made air conditioners. Somebody was an executive at a biotech. Somebody made ice cream. Somebody did the software for electric charging points. Somebody was a marketing executive. Somebody did real estate. We'd all come together once a month for three or four hours in a very, 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 very confidential way and and just sort of open ourselves up. It's literally one of the best things I ever did as the CEO.
1: It's interesting because like they have SBC did a leadership specifically in Barcelona this year and the Power 50, EGR Power 50. Those are two of the conferences that everybody just really like. It's very confidential, but that's where you get real conversations. You know, that's places where I meet everybody. Mm. You know, sitting in Curacao, it's hard to be super social.
0: Are you there for the long haul or do you ever want to uh, leave the island? I love the island. And
1: yeah, yeah, and I have a partner from the island, so...
0: I had a college friend who worked in uh, St. Croix because a bunch of, you know, American businesses were sitting up there because there's certain tax advantages and all that kind of stuff for the U.S. Virgin Islands. And I remember wondering, like, could I, you know, on paper, there's so many things to like, but I think living on an island, very remote, like would kind of get to me. What was it about the island life that made you want to stay?
1: Well, I'm from North Dakota. So the weather was something attractive. But I mean, I've I've been to
0: South Dakota.
1: I did. I did. I went to college in South Dakota and it was a farce. It's not (laughs) South. (laughs) No, I just I love I've always worked in gaming for 28 years and then I've been on in the Caribbean for 29. So I've had a very high intensity job. high stress everything. And to be on an island is perfect. Because I worked a lot, but then you'd have a Sunday and you're like on a, felt like a week vacation. I love the quality of life. I love the people. I love the people from Antigua, the people from Curacao. I'm very connected to Curacao now. I'm, I'm just, I, I love it. And I travel all the time. At Pinnacle, I was traveling 60 to 70% of my life. And that's being a single mother. So that was fun. Fortunately, my daughter turned out incredibly well, thank God. But yeah, so I was gone a lot and I always yeah. wanted to come home. So it's yeah. nice when you have that.
0: Great. And what's next for you? Do you want to do be a CEO at another company or, or new industry? What, what are you looking, what's in the future?
1: I'm, you know, right now I'm just enjoying not having that intensity. I want to take the experience that I have and the knowledge that I have. I'm talking to a lot of people helping a lot of people or trying to help if I can. As far as sitting in a chair, I mean, it would have to be the perfect dream job because I don't see myself doing that. I did 11 years at WWTS, 17 years in Pinnacle. I love the idea of helping people, keeping that constant interaction, but you never know, right? And as I'm going through talking to people, I think that's where I'm gonna find my next chapter. And I can't be in the WIPO group because I'm over 50, Jason.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, next time, I guess. I think you have to be a certain age to get into it. But they do. They have this thing called YPO Gold for over 50. But I don't know if you can go into YPO Gold without it having been the member. But I'm sure there's something equivalent. Before I let you go, one of the questions i like to ask my guest is, what do you want to be when you grow up?
1: Just be happy. I want to be happy. I want to do good
0: very nice i have mad respect for your tenure at pinnacle and the legacy that you've left there and it's been a real pleasure to have you come on the pod and get some of your ideas behind the scenes. so thanks very much for joining us today
1: my pleasure nice to see you again
0: good stuff